Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmwide research at Galaxy Digital. This week on the podcast, first, markets with BIM, uh, talk about inflation and some other crazy happenings in macro markets. Then we have a crypto roundtable with Trey Aslanian and Walt Smith from Galaxy Digital Trading. We're going to talk about the newly launched Aptos blockchain a spin-out from Facebook's failed Libra project, and a lot of controversy around this blockchain's launch. We're going to talk about the future of block space and whether new blockchains are even needed in the future, with a lot of interesting discussion about fees and, and roll-ups and layers. And then we're going to talk about a really embarrassing security incident happening on the Bitcoin SV uh, blockchain, which is a fork of a fork of Bitcoin. All of that and more. But before we get into it, I have to tell you, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this podcast constitutes investment advice or recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Got that disclaimer out of the way, so let's get going. Let's go to our friend Bimnet Abibi uh, from Galaxy Digital Trading, uh, our friend Talk About Markets. Bim, what are you seeing out there? We've had some inflation prints since our last uh, podcast last week. I know CPI was last Thursday, um, and there have been some others. I mean, is that the big story so far this week? Uh, yes, absolutely. So you've had uh, four um, surprises in inflation um, since we last spoke. All to the upside? All to the upside. Okay. The U.S. Uh, came in much stronger than expected. Core CPI printed a trend high. We haven't been at these levels since 1980, as you know, we'll, we'll get into uh, at a later point in time. Uh, last night, uh, U.K. CPI surprised higher by, by a tenth of a base point, uh, by 0.1. And you also had New Zealand CPI surprised to the upside. So point being, the inflation story has not gone away. Um, and that is weighing on risk assets, and that is weighing on in fixed income markets um, in particular. And today you're seeing um, the U.S. 10-year break 4% in a meaningful way. You're at 412 basis points right now. Same thing with 30-year with bonds. Um, and, and now equities are, are resuming their, their trend lower and dollar strengthening again. So because of the inflation data uh, staying really strong and continuing to surprise to the upside and not trending lower, um, you know, markets have had to react to the idea that Fed and central bank policy is going to remain hawkish and that's going to continue to weigh on risk assets. So it's the same same bad story. Uh, we had a little bit of reprieve for for, you know, through the summer um, and then even a little in September. Um, and then it's it's uh, we've had some violent moves in, in the S&P. I mean, last week when CPI printed, I think it had moved on Thursday. The S&P moved five point five percent total. From intraday. way down intraday, yes, to a yeah, huge the, bullish day or a huge green day at like three plus three percent or something. Absolutely. You had a low to high move in the NASDAQ of nine percent, which is historic. I think you've had like, you know, four or five Ever. sort of figures like that. Yeah. Um, and it's largely a function of, of the the market structure dynamics going into that number. People were short. They saw the headline. The algo sold. And then the macro type sold. And so there's a lot of seller exhaustion. Um, and that's why we rallied. And so um, you know, this is definitely a market that is susceptible to short squeezes because of the magnitude of the positioning. Um, there was a, a Bank of America survey that came out yesterday that basically said cash and defensive positioning was at like a two to three standard deviation point, like not levels not seen since like 2008. So people are really bearish positioned for it and that makes the market very vulnerable for squeezes. But again, um, the trend is still in place and the flows that you see should support you, you know the thesis that is a short squeeze. So for example, today, um, you know some of the color that we got from one, one of the, the banks that we deal with was uh, there was three to four times as much short covering as there were long sales. Um, and so it is a market that is uh, being driven by these, these violent short squeezes. But ultimately, um, the big picture trends are still in place. Those big picture trends are bonds are continue to sell off. Dollars going to continue to go bid and equity markets are going to continue to sell off. And the one thing I'll highlight is there is, in my head, a huge divergence between um, what the rate market is pricing and what equities are. Um, if just high level, uh, the, the, the rate world um, suggests that equity should be a lot lower 
than here. Um, the probabilities of a recession are basically 100% for next year. I saw Bloomberg's model uh, says that it's 100% chance of 2023 Absolutely. recession. Absolutely. And all of the, the market indicators that typically lead recessions, like um, you know, two's tens curve inversion and, and, and metrics like that, all suggest that you are headed into a recession. And equities are not priced for a recession right now. They're barely pricing in the FX movements. Are people and just hanging on, hoping that like the thing turns and that we don't actually, I mean, what is, that doesn't make sense to me. The, the market is not being efficient. Uh, yes and no. I think the issue with the U.S. is that there's a very slow transition mechanism, a transmission mechanism between, um, you know, tighter financial conditions and like the real economy. A lot of it is is because of that the structural things like mortgage rates being like, like we talked years about housing and, and, and fixed and the savings base that that already exists. So it's just a much slower uh, transmission mechanism. People don't feel the pinch quite yet, so they're not like selling stocks. I see. Um, and also the culture is really tough to break when you've been trained to buy stocks on every buy dip. every dip, yeah. Um, and same thing with bonds for the better part of a decade. And some would argue two to three decades. Uh, it takes you know more than you know six months of high interest rate policy to get people to change their mind right. on, on right. how they invest their money. So the last time you said this, the last time in uh, inflation core CPI was this high was 1980, 1981. Yes. Um, and at that time, the Fed funds rate was 12%. Absolutely. But today we're at what, 3.25-ish percent? Correct. That is the upper end of the band. Yeah. And terminal rates are now pricing in 5%. So. Oh, wow, that's gone up. It was in the fours. It was, it was like 4.7 or yeah, so. Yeah, after CPI, the terminal rate pricing went from like 460, 470-ish to uh, basically 5%. Wow. Um, and that's above where the Fed told you they that's were going to be. That's above the dot plot. That's above the dot plot yeah. by over 50 basis points. So, the, you know, I, I, a lot is different um, in, in many parts of the economy, in the government and, and fiscal situation since uh, between 1980 and, you know, 2022. Yeah. But um, is it possible that rates have to go to, like, Paul Volcker levels one day to stop this? Just is that possible? Um, every... Thing in history tells you that how you get inflation down is you raise the Fed funds level either to the level of inflation or above. That is the only textbook proven way of effectively fighting inflation. Um, and so, yes, it's feasible. And I think anybody telling you that they have confidence in the path of rates um, is just foolish because the market's been consistently wrong all year. Um, and I think generally people in developed markets that aren't used to inflation, they're used to deflation and central banks constantly trying to get inflation. They're not used to the idea that inflation can be sticky and mm. that you can get into a, a spiraling situation of like higher wages and higher cost of goods. And then you have, you know, nationalism with resources. So there's a path where inflation stays high for a really long time and Right now, the, the Fed has the bandwidth in terms of the employment side of their mandate to really take rates much higher if they need it to. So I think it's feasible that you get rates, you know, call it 6% or higher. I think that's reasonable. 12% and change for the world that we live in, um, I think, would be calamitous, like riots on the streets kind mm -hmm. of thing. And, you know, the president getting calls from like every other president being like, the dollar's too strong. Yeah, Help like, us I mean, out. We, we, might have we to, like, can't start feed a, our people. It could end up with like war. Over, war, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you'll certainly start a financial and then, war. And then like, also people dumping US like assets U.S. government and, debt. Right, yeah, as uh, well. Which, yeah, the which, big thing is the absolute level of debt in the world is right. is staggeringly like higher than where it was in the in the eighties. It's, it's so funny, like, because because you're like, how can all the governments be in debt? Like, do they not? Like who to whom are they in debt, right? Just private, private and corporates and investors. Basically. A lot of it is to themselves, the aka the well, central banks. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the Fed balance sheet is at eight or nine trillion dollars. Yeah, right and, now. and they've lost a lot of money. I saw that uh, chart the that was going around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they lost a lot of the money that they print um, mm -hmm. by buying stuff with it. Um, <laughs> That's I know, comical. The, the don't I, yeah, this the is dynamics. why I'm long Bitcoin. Um, so. <laughs> All right. Hey, that's that's all we got. We're going to keep it tight. Thank you so much, Bimnet, as always. Uh, and we'll see you next week, man. Brilliant. A new high throughput, low latency blockchain spun out from Facebook's Libra project, failed Libra project called Aptos, um, highly anticipated, uh, launched this week. And there was a lot of controversy around this launch. 
um, for a variety of reasons. I'll just say some of them. But before I get into this, I want to bring in two guests to the show. Trey Aslanian, uh, I think maybe third appearance now on Galaxy Brains. Trey uh, of the House of the Lion. Welcome, man. How are you, Trey? Doing well, brother. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. Trey from Galaxy Digital Trading. And also in his first appearance, uh, formerly of the Galaxy Research Team, now of Galaxy Digital Trading, Walt Smith. Welcome, my friend, Walt. How are you? Good, good, good. It's great to be on. So Aptos launched. It's this big, heavily VC-backed uh, project, again, spun out from Facebook's failed Libra project. And there's a couple of those spinouts we're going to talk about. It launched on exchanges trading uh, yesterday, Tuesday. So today's Wednesday, uh, you know, the, the 19th. Um, and there was a lot of controversy for, for I think, the, originally for two reasons, but then even a couple more. The main one was that it was launching for trading with no information about its supply distribution, which I think, as our listeners know, is, an, is a key piece of information that any investors in crypto assets need to know. Because, you know, we all know that Bitcoin is a 20 million you know, uh, total terminal fixed supply. We also, I don't think, does anyone know the, the, the supply of any random coin off the top of their head? Probably not. The meme 21 million, iconic. So people know that. Um, but when you go to, to, you know, use these things, and whether it's to own as an investment or use them on chain, if you're going to use them even for gas, right? Who holds the supply and what the issuance schedule is, is important information. And Aptos was launching with no disclosure around this, which is, to be honest, irregular in, in crypto. Um, so there was uproar over that. Um, then uh, it was leaked. I guess one of the exchanges that was going to be trading it uh, somehow it was leaked what it was. And it looked terrible. And then finally, you know, we'll get into that. But then finally, the Aptos Foundation formally did release like a, a, maybe an hour or two before it started trading on places like Binance and FTX, um, this supply distribution. And what it boils down to is that the founding team, either through the foundation, through allocation directly to themselves as founders and developers, or through this supposed community allocation, um, controls over 80% of the supply. And the rest, by the way, is mostly their investors who are locked up for, I think, at least a year. So basically, they control all of the supply, which is really even in the in the you know world of unfair launches, um, that's highly irregular, to be honest. I mean, incredibly centralized supply. And that was really controversial. People were furious about that. Yeah, I think I think you touched on a lot of the interesting dynamics just for some of the context. Um, initially, it came out that the foundation behind Aptos, Aptos Labs, or the company behind it, rather, um, was asking exchanges not to list perps for a couple of weeks. And then kind of classic game theory, Binance came in and said they're going to list the perp. And then FTX quickly followed on, said they're going to list the perp. And so FTX, a big investor in, yeah. in Aptos, like publicly disclosed, right? So Absolutely. And, and for context, the first round raised for um, Aptos valued it at $2 billion. And then the follow-on was a Series A that raised uh, $150 million. So in total, they raised $350 million. So that's a lot of funding to uh, go into a project that didn't have the funding, I guess, to figure out what their tokenomics were or <laughs> disclose them to the public. Yeah. So pretty interesting. On on this, on this the kind and of... And by the, the way, it's trading after a day or two at around a $1 billion valuation. So half yeah. of what, what uh, investors reportedly well, a, paid for it. A, a billion a billion circulating. It's around like $8 billion fully diluted. Oh, so, gotcha. So yeah. they're still... They're a billion still like, in what like little is circulating. Yeah. What, how much is circulating? I think, it's like an, I think it's like 10 to 12%, right? Something yeah, like it's, it's 120 million tokens about. And it wicked up at first to 14, 15 bucks and then quickly sold off. It's around seven. Um, so that puts it around like 50th in market cap. Um, similar size in FDV to the market cap of like Polkadot, um, like existing L1s. So kind of can guess the direction that that's going to go. But um, another interesting about the, the tokenomics was it was all locked up for... Uh, its investors, but the the chain actually started generating blocks October twelfth, I believe it was. So about six days before it was announced, I, th this was accused to be a pre mine, basically. That that pre mine, pre mine. Yeah, exactly. A pre mine, pre mine. Uh, we're joking because the pre mine, the first pre mine is just the insider allocations. Then the <laughs> second is that blocks were being produced before they announced that the mainnet had actually launched, um, and that gives. Uh, validators on the network an advantage over the public in general. A hundred percent. I think I think there was some interesting dynamics on the social business development front of this getting launched. 
Um, we can talk a little bit more about the move language that makes it novel, arguably, um, and kind of get into yeah, that. Let's go into that a little bit because one of the big things that was interesting about Libra's design was that they built their entire thing on this coding language called Move, which Facebook invented and apparently people love. Um, and and so Aptos uses Move. There's also another spin out from the Libra project called Sui, made by Mistin Labs, which also will use Move. Um, and then there's a third project, Zero Libra, which is like, I guess, a straight fork of Libra and thus also uses Move. Um, so I don't know, before we go deeply into that, can you, Walt, you've looked at this a lot. What is the difference? Let's start with Aptos and Sui, which I think are the two like, you know, most anticipated Libra forks uh, or Libra derivative projects. What's like the sort of just basic overview? How are these different? Yeah, the, the simple man's kind of take is these are similar to Solana, they're monolithic, they're fast. But if you actually dive into the tech, they're um, very different, different data structures, different storage costs, different mempools. So there's big differences. But for Sui versus Aptos, Aptos kind of took this build fast, have lots of partnerships approach, really build out the social economic layer, which we have seen other chains do that with just copycat tech and prove really successful and really valuable and attract a lot of users. But on the other side of that, um, you had Sui, which actually has the Move inventors on their team. So the inventor of the Move language actually works at uh, Mistin Labs. Mistin Labs, and they're taking a, a slower approach. Their consensus is not traditional. Um, it's not like a typical blockchain consensus. It's actually a DAG, which enables Move to be a little bit faster. Um, so transactions in Move, because it's an object-oriented program programming language, which basically means transactions can move ahead of consensus or don't have to be executed in one sequence. So transactions can move ahead. So it's a little bit faster. So Sui's like technically, on a technical level, it's probably the superior network in my opinion. Um, but what Aptos really had going for it was kind of getting this network effect, launching first, getting these partnerships first, going on exchange first. But with the launch, it kind of seems like they might have botched that a little bit. I mean, time will tell, but... Do you think it's like a like an Optimism Arbitrum situation where Optimism's out first, Arbitrum has like around the same amount of T TVL? That's a really good way of thinking about it. I think some of those corollaries are right. I think Optimism and Arbitrum have kind of got some self-sustaining moats, um, whereas Sui and Aptos, just kind of how Alex highlighted, have so many competitors now. Um, he talked about Zero Libra, which is a fork that VCs aren't even backing. It's kind of a community-led project. But there's also something called Starcoin out of Asia. It uses Move, and it's um, proof of work instead of proof of stake. Um, so I think there's just like so many competitors in this space. While Move might be really exciting, there's no reason it can't end up on a roll-up. Solana is even working on an implementation that'll settle to their virtual machine. So I think there is a world where move kind of grows and gets more than like the 43 active developers in the Aptos ecosystem right now. But uh, I don't think it has to inherently live on the first network that launches. They're kind of all competing for the same users, the same capital. And when so many chains are forking uh, the structure, it becomes uncompetitive almost. Cool programming language, but a cool pro programming language is not a moat, I guess, is the takeaway. Well, That's that, the TLDR for sure. Yeah, and, and could other networks uh, add Move? I mean, if Move is so great, like, would we see Solana? Uh, could Ethereum add Move? I mean, you know, I think this comes down to one of the big questions, which is, like, can we... Because you got Aptos and Sui, you got this other one, Zero Libra. Uh, I think, Walt, you've mentioned to me that Solana is planning to add a move, a way to do move, a move EVM or some, a move VM or something in there. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the VM for Aptos is not extraordinarily complex or powerful, whereas Solana VM, um, you can stack another virtual machine on top of it, and then you can get move, which the novelty of move, again, is like the, what you could call object-oriented programming language. So it allows you to talk about like the storage and the timing of like the resources on the chain are really, really clear and spelled out, which you know could make it harder to reason about, but also enables faster transaction propagation, like parallelization, which as like a lot of our listeners probably know, Solana is kind of known for bringing parallelization right. of compute to um, ecosystems, but Solana already has a moat. Solana has been in production for years. 
Solana has been testing and it, you know it's had downtime issues, but it's been able to work on those. It's had updates, whereas these other networks are not only competing with all these other ones, they're competing with uh, chains that have existing user bases that have tested software, tested hardware. So it is a really competitive environment, I think, to launch a new L1, L1 let alone one that's been forked five times. And let alone the macro environment uh, and the crypto environment is significantly different uh, than it was, say, when Solana launched um, or even just last summer when something like ICP yeah. finally launched um, from the Definity Foundation. Uh, Definity, I don't know. I think so. Definity, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definity, yeah. yeah. Definity. The, the, yeah. the ICP launch, just for context, if Aptos had reached any sort of like the fervor on listing day, it would have been like $166 a token. So significantly a 10x from what it actually top ticked at, even more than that. But trying to get there when like yields are at 4%. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, the investing environment is very different overall. Right? Yeah. So, or like Solana has a ton of users or Ethereum has like a pretty clear scaling roadmap. Or Cosmos is getting a ton of adoption seems difficult. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, uh, and we're going to go into this, and we're going to transition in a second. But before, uh, the, the big question is, okay, if we if Move is so great, okay, then how many of these Move-based blockchains survive, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, I think it's hard to see when, when, you know, can we have Aptos and Sui? Can we have oh, Aptos, Sui, and Zero Labs? There are a whole lot of EVM chains, that, man. That's true, but how many of them are relevant? Yeah. Uh, Right now, <laughs> not many. One, yeah, one. yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Trace, Trace, probably right on that. I agree. Um, I mean, I, like others can be, and and they have better. To be honest, a bunch of the other maybe twenty other EVM chains are more relevant than Aptos and Sui will be in the near term. Um, but if Move is so great, and then it gets incorporated into an existing thing with user base and years of work, then it starts to be like existing security yeah then it's yeah. like this is a pretty this could be a honestly this could end up being a pretty big flop in the long run not just aptos but perhaps all of these yeah um but then the relative game i mean you know mistin and aptos we and aptos are you know yes they are different they're meaningfully technologically different but from a user experience and adoption standpoint i mean what do we really think? I mean how different can they does that matter? That's a big yeah. question. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we've talked about previously is some of these forks are don't really have like inside allocation at all. They're community launched because of like the open source kind of genre of crypto. You're able to just fork the code and start your own network without having uh, investors that might be more I don't know. What what would you call it, Alex? I don't know. Uh, it, it, uh, it, investors that would be more helpful, right? I mean, or if you want to kick out the investors who might be, um, I mean, on the, on the maybe on the good side of this, yeah. not very value additive, yeah. perhaps all the way to parasitic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and that's what a lot of, that's, you raise a good point because um, Zero Libras may be an example. Um, there's others where, um the communities have, there's always been a lot of forks in crypto, yeah. right? I mean, tons of Bitcoin forks. There's been there's Ethereum forks. There's, there's this, the open source code is forkable. Um, but an increasing reason that we're seeing to do, the communities are doing a fork is specifically to remove the venture capital allocations, Yeah, which yeah. is really an interesting trend. What, what have you seen there? Well, I think you were telling me 32 billion was raised by VCs or something in 2022. What was the number? Yeah, it's in the 30s. I mean, we're actually still working on that. We're workshopping this number a little bit. Okay, um, okay. Mo mo the data is right, but um, we're 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 honing our taxonomy yeah. a bit on what we include as a crypto VC. But yes, I mean, tens of billions of dollars, and and last year was just a gangbusters for crypto VC. So for context, you know, when Aptos launches and it's at a billion dollar valuation after about 24 hours of trading, and it's valuation in the private market was around $2 billion. That kind of tells you, uh, as along with the number Alex just highlighted, like how far along private markets are. It's really, really saturated. So then when you have like these saturated markets and people want to be new to crypto, they want to game around, they want to play on chain and experiment with these new technologies, but they don't want to be up against, you know, big whales. It, it makes sense that people are going to fork it. And one of the cool parts we've seen is not just in like the uh, Ethereum ecosystem or with these new chains, but with like existing tech. So there's a chain called like Evmos, which has been forked into Canto and Barachain, which has like no VC allocation. It's entirely community red, which is cool because it's like a grassroots movement, which kind of goes back to like the early days of crypto 
um, in yeah. terms of being about the people. Yeah, well, more fair launch, um, or, or in, the, in that case, forking out the VCs entirely, the insiders entirely, it does raise a risk, um, though, Absolutely. that we saw with BNB uh, Chain's bridge, right, which is a fork of uh, some Cosmos technology, yeah. and they didn't stay up with the upstream uh, developments and enhancements and upgrades that the Cosmos team was doing, yeah. and thus were unaware that they shouldn't that they could have patched or stopped using patched a bug slash and I think in that case stopped using a specific type of module which caught was in the Cosmos the Tendermint code base yeah but which Cosmos Hub doesn't actually use anymore. Um, the point being, if you fork somebody else's technology, um, your developers need to at very least follow very closely with the upstream repository or understand changes. it enough if yeah, they're going to implement be that, as, be yeah. that good. Um, okay, before we move on from Aptos, just one thing that I haven't seen anybody talk about about Aptos, but a huge story. Are, are you guys aware that Aptos' CEO, uh, Mo, is being sued by by the Glazer family, which is the family that owns the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, specifically <laughs> alleged to have swindled them out of their allocation in Aptos? Um, and and he moved a few weeks ago. Moved um, nice in court to no 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 not <laughs> oh yeah um, move the language not moved geographically. He got made it, a motion it, in court to deny the uh, to to dismiss the lawsuit, which was denied. Specifically, they are claiming that uh, uh, a fraudulent scheme in, uh, implemented by the Aptos founder Mo Shake uh, Shake Shack uh, deprived her of her rightful share of the partnership in the blockchain technology venture. I don't know the facts of this case. But you can read the uh, their their motion is extremely detailed. Talks about what, all the times they met and how they agreed on wow. terms. So this is also a little bit of hangover for the Apt. I don't know exactly how this might affect Aptos, the blockchain, or the asset. But um, th this is no. This isn't a uh, you know random litigious party. This is the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, in 2017, Forbes estimated they were worth more than $5 billion. They also own a significant portion of Manchester United, which is a publicly traded soccer team. Wow. <laughs> um, and so I just throwing that out there. Also, something to check out. Uh, the Block wrote a good story on this, so feel free to just Google that. Um, I don't know what that means either. May, honestly, maybe this has something to do with the sort of what felt like a hasty launch. I mean, yeah. maybe yeah. this pulled forward the launch a little bit in their mind. I, I think that's super interesting, like between the perp listings, um, asking not to have perps listed for at least two weeks. The lack of disclosure on the tokenomics the early, and then how bad the tokenomics are. The early launch allowing, you know, insiders to start staking and earning oh, about 7% yes. yield. The pre -mine. Yeah, the pre-mine. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Interesting intriguing yeah, troubling. going on i would say troubling, troubling to be honest yeah. it's it's i think this is in many ways a textbook poor launch poor poorly coordinated launch and for of a, a new blockchain and for a network that's competing on kind of more of its bd side than really its novelty when there's so many move competitors it's gonna hold it back quick break here to our listeners. We'd love to hear your take on this debate about move-based blockchain development. We've got a poll pinned to our Twitter profile, which is at GLXY Research, which asks, in two years, which of these blockchains will have the most move-based activity? A, Aptos, B, Mistin Labs' SWE, three starcoin or zero libra or four ethereum and solana go on there and vote we'd love to hear your feedback we'll read the results next week now back to the show okay we're back we're talking about block space now and i think this is a big question when i think about any new l1 blockchain launching and and i've been saying this i said this uh, on some panels and you know, I have to ask, this is the question for you two, Trey and, and Walt, is how, how much more block space do we need? I mean, do we really need new L1s? I, I was, I was, I, I'm skeptical that we do. A, a, an investor in a new L1 recently was telling me, no, there's all these use cases that are impossible still given various technological hurdles of the existing blockchains. Okay, that's I know that's the thesis. Um, it's a little bit chicken in the egg, right? I mean, on the one hand, I'm saying... We need the applications and use cases. We're at that stage, okay? We're not, um, we're not still early, right? I, I argue sometimes, and then and then you get the. I already presented the opposite argument. But what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I think we have plenty right now, to be honest. Um, I view like most other alt 
EVM chains as like test nets, billion dollar test nets. Um, like for Ethereum, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, and listen, that's valuable, right? Like it's cool to like experiment and like have like actual people's like, you know, money at stake in these things and like experiment. I think there's a ton of value there, but like, I think we end up scaling in layers, kind of like the Bitcoin argument, right? Where you have like, how cheap is Arbitrum right now? Like it's under a penny to send stuff to swap. It's awesome. And then they even have a layer three on top of that called Nova which is like for more gaming and you kind of abstract security each level you go up. Isn't Nova like, uh, is it Reddit that's using Nova or something or not? Maybe it wasn't Reddit. Uh, they have some social uh, uh, integration. I can't recall which, but yeah, I don't know if that's on Nitro or Nova. Oh, right. Okay. Either, <laughs> Those either, are all Arbitrum. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. E either way. Um, I think that's kind of how we scale so you think layers. Yeah. And, and at, at the base layer, you just have very economically dense transactions. And Ethereum, I mean, this has always been, by the way, this is so funny. Like, this is like where we joke sometimes that like Ethereum, but everyone else, it, there, there's just a line there. Like Ethereum is like just behind Bitcoin in some of these ideas, right? Like, and then it turns out like, you know, Solana is behind Ethereum in some of these ideas because the layered scaling approach is the Bitcoin vision for yes. scaling. It always was. Um, and then the Ethereum community has really gotten behind that over the last few years. It's not like it's brand new. Um, and they're re-architecting some of the plan is to re-architect some of how Ethereum works to make it even better for rollups, uh, to exist. So I guess the idea then is that there'll be, I don't want to say infinite, but a significantly growing amount of block space on Ethereum. Yeah. I think, I think, um, kind of what you touched on is building in layers and how it's cheaper when you build in layers, but you also inherit the security of like the underlying thing. So if you're using proof of stake, the value of your asset is really what um, the security of your network is. So on Ethereum, you know, $20 billion, how, however much of that is staked, I think it's like, uh, yeah, 20, I think it's about $20 billion of it. It's around 10% of market cap. Yeah, yeah. So that's protecting your users, that's protecting your funds. So if you can build something on a rollup that compresses the data, now you have more throughput, you have more transactions, more usage, but you're still touching the really, really valuable state that's protected. Yep, and and so the, I guess the big question is how many more, right? We, we don't need that many more L1s, right? I mean, if Ethereum's vision works, shouldn't yeah. it eat all of the composable uh, smart contract, general computation chains, theoretically? That's generally my view, and it's, they're going to keep launching until it doesn't work. I, I think so. I think like a good way of looking at this is these L1s are no longer really competing with Ethereum. They're competing with rollups. Can they provide something to developers and users that a rollup can't? Um, I'm of the opinion of generally no. Like if you can get some minor trade-offs and inherit ETH security and ETH years of like battle-tested hardware and software, that's a better decision. Now, there are a few like notable exceptions. I think you could push back on this. Like DYDX left rollups to go to the Cosmos um, kind of ecosystem. And they're using Tendermint because they want their order book to be computed off chain. So like there are some use cases where maybe having sovereignty or better composability in terms of being able to tinker with the consensus is valuable. But I see those as being very few and very sparse. And as we've seen, like Ethereum slowly eats innovations built into other L1s. Then it's like, what what do you actually need block space for, right? Like if your order book is off chain, if all these other things are off chain, right? That introduces yeah. centralization. Like I, I am perfectly fine trading on centralized exchanges. I think it's a great experience. I think you lose some of the decentral decentralization, right? Like that is the reason. It's to do stuff you can't do elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And you probably lose some like user experience. Like if you have all these different networks that struggle to talk to each other, we've seen a ton of bridge hacks. We talked about that in the last um, section with BNB. You introduce more vulnerabilities and it's just harder overall to use, which crypto already has like a UX issue that's being worked on, but launching, you know, five more blockchains just because right. we have a, one new language that could live on a roll-up. Probably a horrible <laughs> user experience. <laughs> yeah, it seems like pretty egregious, to be honest. And like you look at the range of chains that are out there, forget assets, just blockchains. I mean, there's there's hundreds, I, I would say, fairly say. Um, and Last thing, they're, they're not like enough assets. There's enough block space. There just aren't enough assets. Yeah, right? and, like, and, or enough use cases. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, what are the big use cases for blockchains today, right? We know money, purely money, self-sovereign money, nonsense, you know, Bitcoin, a Bitcoin use case. Other, others achieve some of that, but I think Bitcoin is the winner there, 
right it, pro- well now but i i believe in the future on again on just hard secure money wealth storage and transfer um maybe more stuff but the other use cases that we that we've seen um you know uptick defi right there's yeah. there's a use case you yeah. know people like it you know it's been volatile and and you know tvl has not been has both been a manipulated metric right there's the guy in solana that like said how he had specifically forex Solana's, Solana's tvl fit yeah. falsely right like or rehab um, but but there's defi yeah. right and then nfts obviously are a big market i mean even with volumes down huge uh you know they're gonna i mean i as i said on the intro to the show one uh, NFT issuers on Ethereum alone have made 1.8 billion solely in royalties, not even primary issuance. Wow, um, That's a massive and number. so I mean, there, there's a big market there, so there's a use case, and and you know, and then we start to get into stuff that's a lot more. You know, hypothetical or, or early stage, right? Gaming, you know, kinda, maybe, kinda now. We think in the future, yes, um, but you know, there's not a no one's. No one's going home playing Call of Duty and like buying and selling their skins on there yet, right? Like as an NFT, you know, what are those use cases that are going to fill up that block space? You think about something like DeFi, that's finance. Finance is a, is it money is an inherently like network effect centralizing force. Like you don't want to have to go across a bunch of different platforms just to like do your finance, right? And NFTs, you know, you for the most part, you want the value is the is the token record, right? And you yeah. want that record on the most valuable and secure state that you can get. So those will also probably centralize and maybe we do two classes. We kind of have ETH and Solana as the two primary NFT places. And with basically all of the Solana ones like significantly cheaper and all of the like blue chips, I I will throw out there a guy here loves Tezos, Richard Kim from Galaxy Interactive because there's great generative art there. Yeah, yeah. um, But you know, so you have a couple, but like those could also centralize um you know i guess gaming could depending on what you do with the chain um you may need your own chain maybe that's one that leads us to a real multi-chain universe but i struggle to see right i guess to sum this up the use cases that are going to drive the need for hundreds of blockchains yeah i think i think the one 1.8 billion royalty was it that's that's pretty notable because it's pretty much the valuation we got for this new l1 and it kind of goes back to like, what is the value of crypto? Is it like the fat protocol thesis where like this thing should be really worthwhile? Are there going to be applications that accrue a lot of value? What at the bottom in the fat protocol thesis are you really paying for? Is it block space? Because if it's block space, that's a race to zero. Like we saw Avalanche, which is EVM compatible, take up a ton of transaction volume once ETH got bloated and uh, GUI prices went really high. So I think that... Um, kind of like genre of conversation is really interesting because at the base layer, you really have to differentiate what are you talking about? Are you talking about the security of the network is really expensive or really scarce? Are you talking about the consensus, the composability, or are you talking about the block space? Because if it is block space, I think we all kind of seem to be in agreement that that is a race towards zero, at least right there now. There will be a lot of block space, I think, particularly on Ethereum. I mean, if these roll-ups really, and, and some are supposed to launch soon, I think there's obviously it's early days on roll-ups. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of security questions still about the roll-ups themselves. But if we get like highly scalable L2s, right, then it makes you wonder about these L1s. It does. It does. And yeah, I mean, the, to your point, like, we still have centralized sequencers like there right there 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 is work to be done i think we're like on we're, roll-ups we're just yeah. at the precipice of like the zk movement which is the most exciting to me because that scales the other way you know the more transactions you have the cheaper it gets right um but yeah early days i think like all the research we're putting in now like this is the stuff that we're gonna be focused on next bull market not a new l1 we're yeah. gonna be super focused on what Starkware is doing what zk sync's doing what Arbitrum Optimism are doing. Yeah, the Polygon team with their multiple yeah, ZK exactly. projects. Uh, yeah, and I think I think a world where block space is cheap, where you have a lot of transactions, isn't inherently bad. Like if the individual byte of data per fee um, gets really, really low, but you have a ton of users on chain because now you have scalability, which means you have better applications, faster applications, more throughput, then your total like load of fees is still really high. So there's a, a world in which you know, these networks or the one or two that win, or if it's just Ethereum or if it's just Bitcoin, um, it's still really valuable. And it and it's obviously like super valuable to the world to have decentralized trust, but it's also financially valuable. I don't think it is a race to zero just because 
the main resource is going down. No, I totally agree. And it dramatically enhances user experience if fees can go low. Um, one more point on this. And, and you've been talking about like, you know, the valuation of, of you talking about the proto fat protocol thesis. The idea was that the most value would accrue at the protocol layer at the L1. So holding like ETH rather than the applications that wasn't true what was kind of true then it wasn't really true now you might say that it is a little bit more true primarily because DeFi tokens have performed so poorly over the last couple of years even yeah um that was one another thing is when we talk about block space and fees you know a lot of folks have been performing um discount cash flow analyses on blockchains um, and I, you know, we're, when, but one of the, this is one of the biggest questions because most of those analyses look at fees as revenue. And when they can, in order to fit an L1 blockchain into a corporate valuation methodology like the DCF. And, but so at the core of that modeling effort is making assumptions and theories about what fees are in the future. And yeah. in total, per user there's a bunch of different ways to do this but that's a huge question because if we believe that zk rollups are going to be very effective and 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 you know they'll be built in a way that they get used a lot forget you know we think that that means that they need to be sufficiently decentralized themselves and they're not yet to trace point about sequencers but let's just say they end up getting used widely right and you can you don't even need you know they called arbitrum one remember they were saying that yeah. well you could have arbitrum one two three four five six like you once you have a a, a scheme that works really well if for some reason inside the roll-up itself there's a you know max transaction count limit um you just can just make another roll up like, like literally clone it and have the same exact operation and really start to create like unlimited block space or, or a, a ton of block space yeah. in which case fees could be low in which case your entire valuation methodology is is upended right just by again we don't know i'm not actually well we've said we think that Block space will be uh, abundant and not scarce, which I think is a pretty like, frankly, a, a, it's, I think it's becoming more understood, but I think it's still a contrarian view. Um, yeah. And that dramatically would impact various types of valuation methodologies. It's one thing that's so hard about using those traditional methodologies on these particularly the l1s not as hard if you want to do like you know you know like lending fees for like a compound or something right those look a lot more like businesses but these l1s are evolving and there are huge questions about what they look like in the future that dramatically impact if you use some sort of fixed methodology yeah, yeah like what is the terminal value of a digital commodity that's being reprogrammed all the time and the network itself yeah. is being reprogrammed to be able to stuff in more transactions and have different applications and uses yeah it's, it's like not only is like the the you know the single stock have its changes in products and earnings and all that that you have to pay attention to but nisey is going to overhaul its entire <laughs> operations and how stocks work in yeah. general i mean imagine that that's kind of what you're doing when you try to value these things using those traditional yeah. methodologies I think forecasting anything 20 years out on an industry that's been around for a decade is foolish. Um, and that's kind of what we saw over like the DeFi craze, right? They're like, oh my God, this protocol made $10 million today. Annualize that. It's a PE of three. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe, like yeah. kind of. I think that's absolutely right. Like if you look at where crypto has gone it's like some of the earliest encryption schemes for it were around but they were patented so they used different encryption schemes or um they were around but there wasn't like a working use case so for like zk that's been around since the 70s i think and you didn't really have a, a usable version of zero knowledge encryption till around 2019 so it's like how are you going to forecast something when the tech powering it is evolving every day Big questions. Um, we're going to have more, by the way, on valuation uh, from Galaxy Research soon. Uh, but these are some of the questions that we're considering. Um, awesome discussion on block space. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, this. Is maybe This may be the only time or one of the very few times we'll talk about this. But I did think it was very interesting. We're going to talk about Bitcoin SV, the fork uh, of Bitcoin. Um, what is BSV? Yeah, so BSV is... Uh a product of the blockchain block wars with like uh, the block size and Bitcoin. So that's split Bitcoin off to Bitcoin and BCH. Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash. Um, and Bitcoin Cash from there had another issue with uh, raising the block size limit. Um, then that became BSV. And now BSV is kind of ballooned into this thing where, no, you know, the block size is basically unlimited and there's a few nodes running it. 
Wow. Um, and <laughs> Very few nodes. Like yeah, a the, declining the, number of nodes. The, there's a reason in like decentralized systems that you need to kind of keep the compute small so everyone can talk to each other. Um, like you'll often see like, you know, various nodes on BSV be out of sync in terms of block height. Yeah. Um, because it takes so long to propagate the information. Which is funny wow. because they have these huge blocks, sometimes like three gigabytes we're talking about of data. Um, but they have almost no transactions at all. That kind of <laughs> points back massive. to our earlier discussion on vertical scaling and if you stuff too much of the base layer, that's interesting. Well, exactly. And and so so BSV is a fork of BCH, which is a fork of Bitcoin. Um, and so there's a miner right now on this is what's interesting because it's got some good uh, some good lessons for proof of work also here. Um, there's a miner um, apparently called mempool.com, different than mempool.space, the great open source project from Wiz and others that's an open source block explorer, big supporter I am personally of mempool. Um, dot space, but apparently a mempool.com is a, a BSV miner that appeared and is dominating hash rate by like 60% of all total hash rate. Is it that big? Um, yeah. That's amazing. And and they're only mining empty blocks. So this is a well-known like proof of work attack vector, right? By only mining blocks with no transactions in them, um, they are preventing people's transactions from being confirmed now not totally some are getting through because of the other 40 percent, but it's causing a huge disruption on the network this is i mean a little bit of a tangent but this is why i've always thought like terminal state once there's no more block reward this thing will be so much more censorship resistant because right now you you get the block reward it's worth the electricity if you don't get the transaction fees and act you know in a capitalist manner yeah like you're just gonna lose money right so like in the like it's like we are not at the terminal state take on everyone yet like we need to get the zero for bitcoin first. that's yes. interesting um that's, that's a counter take. that is it's counterintuitive a lot of people think that like well at least security yeah. who will pay for the miners right well yeah. we just know the transaction fees you just get what you pay for that's a simple i won't rehash this i went through this whole thing like a couple podcasts ago about my views on a bitcoin security yeah. budget yeah um, but what what one thing that's interesting is so now the Bitcoin Association, um, which is the like foundation that supports BSV, right? There is no actual like Bitcoin Foundation or Bitcoin Association for for actual Bitcoin, right? But this is a a group that supports BSV. Um, they're threatening legal action against this miner, claiming that there's some kind of breach of contract, that you're that that you're not an honest node, that you, to be a node on the network, you have to be, quote, an honest node. This is the language you hear on Twitter from the BSV supporters. Um, and that by acting, by not including transactions, you're actually being dishonest. And that that, that, that is actually some kind of uh, violation of some weird unified legal theory, um, which is just a bonkers concept, by the way, um, because these are open permissionless systems. Like, you, the the only real like rules are how to actually how, what the protocol rules are and of course the protocol rules in in both bsv and bitcoin and proof of work are that miners can that whether which transactions included in a block is not actually they any transactions included simply have to be valid transactions yeah there's no actual requirement that you include anyone's transactions that whole idea about getting your transactions in is incentives in game theory right yeah um, to, your, to Trey's point, but I will say, which is a really wild and novel legal theory, um, and 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 Craig Wright, uh, the uh, leader of the BSV uh, blockchain, um, who Wright claims to be Satoshi Nakamoto, I think almost everyone thinks that's false. Um, but he, the funny thing is, they're making this argument today that it's illegal to mine empty blocks. But in 2018, uh, when BSV supporters were mining empty blocks on BCH. Uh, as an attack, which at the time was still called Bitcoin ABC. That was a wild couple um, hours. It really was. Um, I'm just going to read this short post that Craig Wright wrote in 2018 about mining empty blocks. He said uh, the people at the time were arguing that mining empty blocks was an attack because it is blocking an implied easement to my property, that it was basically blocking access to my property. Wow. Um, and he said that, that that's what people were saying. And he said, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you have no property in a block. A miner is paid to validate a block with the transactions that the self-same miner agrees with. This is what miners do. They are not obliged. They can choose what they do and do not accept, meaning transactions. Mining an empty, empty block, such as on ABC, Bitcoin Cash, um, is a part of the protocol. In fact, you are breaking the rules if you expect a miner to mine your transaction. Any validation could be considered a contract. Uh, a miner can set the fees to any amount they desire and reject all other transactions. 
Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree too, right? That's how <laughs> Bitcoin works. Um, but now, of course, they, they think they can sue a miner for mining blocks yeah, on the chain. Not great security assumptions for BSV if they're relying on like social law yeah. or meat space law <laughs> instead of just kind of like the economic, what would an economically rational miner or validator do in your chain? Well, if they're mining empty blocks and they're having a profit and maintaining that profit, that's economically rational. So not a very robust network. No, not I mean, at all. The and fees are only like three cents. Like, yeah, exactly. The like, fees uh, aren't high enough you to might disincentivize as well, you might as well this behavior. Yeah. It's actually less complicated to mine an empty block. Yeah. You don't have to go to the mempool. Exactly. First of all, there's also very few transactions there. Um, so the whole thing is kind of a joke. And one last point on this is that um, B BCH and BSV, when they forked ultimately down from Bitcoin, right, and they are forks of Bitcoin, um, they didn't change the hashing algorithm, right? So they, they also run on SHA-256 like Bitcoin does, which makes it trivial for a Bitcoin miner to go on to BCH or BSV and attack it with hash rate. Because I've said this before, but the measure of what makes a, a proof of work system secure from say a 51% attack or this empty block attack, it's not the total amount of hash rate in nominal terms. It's the total share of potential hash rate that is on your network. And because they use the same algorithm as Bitcoin, which has literally like many orders of magnitude more hash rate than BSV, a couple miners, couple the small mining operation yeah. on Bitcoin can come onto BSV and dramatically overwhelm it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And that's what's happening. Hash price right now is sky high on Bitcoin. So. Uh, a lot of those miners who are not plugging in all of their machines or have uh, ASICs just lying around could go attack BSV, which sits around right just under a billion market cap. So it might be kind of like the economic thing to do. I don't think we'd ever advocate for that. But yeah, it, the the uh, Bitcoin so the BSV like Bitcoin Association they tweeted announcement: We are taking action to freeze all block rewards associated with the breach of contract. And will be pursuing criminal charges against the entity responsible, but they don't know who the entity is. So they say, we encourage the miner to contact us at their email address ASAP to resolve this dispute. We consider all nodes that refuse to properly re to relay transaction as dishonest nodes. There, there's just no such thing as a dishonest node, right? Like when, when it's just so funny The go and read the white paper, the Bitcoin white paper. It very clearly explains the incentive structure that makes this system work or not work. And it's clear that the incentives on BSV are broken. Yeah, we, we were talking about this the other night at dinner, right? Where it's like, if secure, I mean, this is a tangent, but like if security becomes an issue on Bitcoin, you can set a minimum amount of fees that you have to pay. Yeah. So it's like, it is, it's just been set at zero just because we haven't. It's actually at like one sat now, I believe. Nodes, okay. nodes aren't really to prevent spam. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But again, that's not a consensus change. That's no, just that's... nodes say, I'm not going to relay your transaction to anyone unless you pay, unless you've included, not even pay me. Yeah. You've included some amount of, of, of civil resistant fee. Exactly. So Trey, you're not holding any BSV right now? Uh, you know, I don't like to talk about my finances, but yeah, oh, I'll let you read between the lines. All right, Trey Aslanian, Galaxy Digital Trading, Walt Smith from Galaxy Digital Trading, formerly of the Galaxy Research Team, one of the primary authors of our report, Ready Layer One. Uh, read that at uh, L1.report, one of our great reports, where we also argued over a year ago that the general computation blockchain game was Ethereum's to lose. Um, and you can tell from, I still think, is, earlier yeah. conversation, we still believe that. So um, great to have you guys. Really appreciate it. And and that's it this week for Galaxy Brains. Um, tune in next week, but have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the work we do at Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email. Read our content online at galaxy.com research and follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. That's all for today. See you next time.